We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Ah, welcome back to your listener. Episode 360, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. The Iron Fist. With me as always, Joe the Tech Guy. How are you, Joe? Evening, all. Oh, dear listener, this live streaming gig, it's not easy. You would not believe the technical difficulties that have been overcome in the last two hours. I'm on a live chat with some guy in the Ukraine, probably, trying to sort things out. And um, we're like a duck on the water where... You know, above water, it all seems calm and serene, and underneath, we're paddling like like mad. So, um, so anyway, it's not easy, but we're going to pull it off. And if I seem a bit frazzled, it's because I haven't been able to review the notes because in the last hour and a half, I've been pulling plugs and reconnecting and doing all sorts of things. So, anyway, well, dear listener, uh, what's been going on in the world? Uh, of course, we've got um, uh, Rishi Sunak, 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 Sunak. New Prime Minister, going to be uh, sworn in shortly, if he isn't already. Uh, we'll get on to that. And we've also got netballers and uh, Hancock Mining and the sponsorship. So there's something about sport, isn't there, that um, brings these issues to light. And so we'll get into the weeds of the netballers and Hancock Mining and see where else we end up with uh, Lydia Thorpe and bikey gangs and other things like that along the way. But before we do... Just sort of following up on stuff that we've spoken about recently and one of those issues that we spoke about, oh, if you're in the chat room, say hello. Um, hopefully it's working. Um, nobody's I'm tuned in. I not anyone in there, but I can. I got alerts on Facebook that we're streaming. Yeah. So. Who knows? They might all be watching the budget speech or something like that, oh, Joe. Maybe. Yeah. So actually I think there's four people watching, looks like. Anyway, so last uh, week or the week before, giving a very dim view or thinking about climate change and how difficult it was going to be and essentially our economies have to change dramatically if we're to pull off a reduction of carbon emissions. And one of the ways of doing that might be just to decrease populations. And I came across a tweet um, by a guy and this is going to be some significant – well, the UN has put out – and this of is available in our world in data, but lots of countries are actually going to experience significant drops in their population. So between 2022 and 2100, so in 80 years' time, here's what they think is the likely decreases in population for various countries. Um, South Korea, 53%, Ukraine, 49%, China, 46%, uh, Cuba, 42%, Poland, 42%, Japan, 41%, Greece, 39%, Italy, 38%, Thailand, 38%. That's their big increases, uh, decreases in population. Um, Ukraine, I'm not so sure about. Right. Because I'm guessing that was before the war, and it tends to be... Stable countries have population declines. Unstable countries tend to have population increases. Mm. So I got onto our world in data and was looking at it, and um, I meant to try and bring it up, and I might be able to now. Let me just get it across on another screen. If, if this will work, Joe, this will be a miracle. But um, uh, so I had those countries actually went to our world in data and had a look. Um, let me see if I can share this screen of Australia. So, yeah, Australia was the one I looked at first of all. And look, um, we're around the 25, 26 million mark at the moment. And it looked like we were going to head um, close to 40 million by the end of the century. So no prediction of a change for Australia. In fact, we're going to be increasing not decreasing. So that will be interesting to see if that pans out. Um, 
The other one I looked up was uh, India. Let's see if I can find that one now. And India um, at the moment is about 1.4 billion. And uh, by the uh, by 2100, it's going to be one, it's going to go up and that's going to go down a bit. So 1.56. So anyway, there's Africa as well was another one where they were going to go up. So obviously rich developed countries very much likely to have almost 50% decrease in many cases. Poorer uh, developing areas still going. So if population halves, then maybe we'll have a chance of pulling off uh, this problem with climate change. Who knows? So anyway, there's links in the show notes for that. And um, speaking of massive population changes, Joe, we also talked about the bubonic plague that mm-hmm. we talked about. Is that the same as the Black Death? Right? The yes. same things? Right. And an uh, interesting article came out about the Black Death and they've been digging up bones from ancient, well, from cemeteries where they know that there were um, people who didn't die of uh, the plague and people who did and they've been comparing the DNA from the grave sites and looking at the differences as to who survived and who didn't. And uh, one of the things they've come up with is that uh, people who had a certain gene were more likely to survive the Black Death. So it was um, plague victims and then people who came from a cemetery that was about 100 years after the plague had gone through. So those who had survived and were descendants of the people who had survived the Black Death. Right. So that's what they were comparing. Yep. And they happened to have a gene which, while it was great for fighting the plague, uh, seems to be associated now with people who have Crohn's disease in that it's associated with an overactive immune system and you're therefore... If you have Crohn's disease or um, rheumatoid arthritis and yes. psoriasis, yes, uh, I think there's another one, but those are the major ones. Yes, uh, then if you had that gene, it was more likely then that you're going to have Crohn's disease. And dear listener, fun fact for you, but your two co-hosts of this podcast at this very moment actually have Crohn's disease, which is sort of unusual. I would have thought statistically. Yeah, I think it's about one in a thousand. Mm. So we can work out the odds that uh, two people doing a podcast would have mm-hmm. Crohn's disease. So, so yeah, lots of people sent that article around, and I sent it to you, Joe. You'd already seen it, obviously, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah, um, the gene that helped to fight the Black Death uh, actually, unfortunately, is associated with an overactive immune system and is potentially leading to Crohn's disease. You need the gene, plus there are other triggers that they're trying to figure out what they are. Yeah. Um, So one of the triggers they're looking at is um, surfactants in modern processed food. Mm. And that's um, effectively aids the texture of um, foods. And Mm -hmm. so that's quite often added in for making food more palatable in processed foods. Yeah, and for Um, aesthetic reasons sort of things. Yeah. Uh, Crohn's disease is an autoimmune that, kind of like asthma, but with asthma you can't breathe. With Crohn's, it in, it causes your intestines to inflame, mm. and um, you can't process digest food. It's very painful. Lots of people end up, depending on where, it can be anywhere from your mouth to your anus. Mm. Is from your gums to your bum is the mm. um, uh, short description. And um, lots of bloody diarrhea for most people. I actually, because mine's further up, tend to get constipated and very, very painful. Um, so weight loss um, and, and just chronic pain. Mm. Uh, and quite often you end up getting bits of your intestines cut out. Mm. You didn't cut out? Yeah, I had 80 centimetres removed. 80? Yeah. Wow, that's a lot. 
because over mm. time, um, so you have inflammation in the intestine, the inflammation mm. left untreated over time turns into scar tissue. And mm. then once the scar tissue is there, you can't reverse that. They have to chop it out because that's blocking food from getting through. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was diagnosed uh, around 1999 and um, kind of late in life really and didn't know anything about it. But um, they sort of looked at, you know, I had different uh, tests done and they said, well, you've either got Crohn's disease or lymphoma. Not sure. Yep. We're going to open you up and see what we find and tell you when you wake up. And um, uh, at the time, really, Joe, lymphoma had a pretty good success rate, mm-hmm. very good success rate of a total sort of um, cure, if you like. Um, and Crohn's, of course, there is no No, it's a lifelong fix. disease. Indeed. And I had a life insurance policy like mm-hmm. a um, sickness policy that would have paid me a hundred grand for lymphoma, and guess how much for Crohn's disease? Mm, Five thousand zero. Okay. <laughs> I remember waking up, and they said, "Well, it's Crohn's disease." And my thought, my first thought was, oh, "Fuck, I've missed out on a hundred grand." Yeah. And I've got this goddamn incurable, nasty one that people tell mm-hmm. me you don't want to have. And I lost 20 centimetres of bowel and 10 centimetres, that was small bowel, and 10 centimetres of large bowel. Yeah, okay. stitched me up. Fortunately, I've been pretty good since. And uh, at this point in time, it's not really uh, flaring up. So I'm a, one of the lucky ones. You see some terrible, terrible stories. So. Yeah, um, on, on average, um, every five years for surgery mm. is, is the yeah, average for a Crohn's patient. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so there we go. Um, that was just an interesting sort of... And, and in terms side. of the gene, that's not unusual. Um, I was trying to think. Sickle cell anemia um, is due to a genetic mutation that makes you less susceptible to malaria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically from areas that are endemic with malaria and that, Mm-hmm. It, it's seen as a North African disease, but actually it seems to be fairly consistent. That gene is fairly consistent through the Mediterranean anyway. Right. So places where you've had um, malaria mosquitoes, you get this gene and it, it protects you against malaria. But if both parents have the gene, then um, you end up with sickle cell anemia. Right. Which destroys your um, red blood cells, I think which leads you to have, yeah, anemia. Okay. Is that related to Crohn's at all? No, no, no. But, again, it's a, a genetic development that protects you against a certain disease that mm. in the end leads to a different disease. Right. Yeah. Yep. So um, so there we go. Um, all right. UK. So mm. much has happened since we last spoke. Politics moves quickly. Yeah. Um, I don't know if the live stream of the lettuce had started by the time we were mm. podcasting mm. but the lettuce won yes yeah so it outlasted her mm-hmm. um so just and apparently some... the day before she had said i'm gonna fight to the end i'm never going to resign and the next day she was gone yeah she said i'm a fighter not a quitter yeah yeah so oh dear listener language warning because i'm going to play a few clips and a lot of the a lot of the commentators in the UK, you know, both Jonathan Pye, who's always swearing, but even other MPs are swearing. They're furious about what happened in all this thing. So, um, so yeah, language warning. A few f words dropped over the next half hour or so. Bear that in mind. So we never fucking swear on this podcast. Yeah, we? that's right. So we normally. Keep it pretty clean. Uh, okay. Reading some tweets. This one from James O'Brien. I know it's fascinating to track every twist and turn of the Tories' latest psychodrama, but when you step back from ringside, it's all proof of how utterly screwed they and we are. The country is in deep crisis, and most of their MPs are behaving like it's an episode of strictly something rather. 
So it's stri- strictly come dancing, which was come dancing and strictly ballroom uh-huh. merged. Right. So it's um, uh, what they call it, reality TV. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, another tweet was: My son has lived through four chancellors, three home secretaries, two prime ministers, and two monarchs, and he's four months old. <laughs> yep. Kind of reminds me of Australia not that long ago. Yeah, yeah, they're out. They're out doing us. They're making us uh, look good. Um, so, in the lead up, there was a vote over fracking. I'd never considered fracking in the UK, but um, it was something that Liz Truss was pushing for fracking to occur. This, of course, is where you pump water underground in order to eject the gas or oil out of it. Oh, out of a coal seam. And yes. um, there's definitely coal in the UK. That was why it became industrially yeah. great. Hadn't thought of it. And yeah. it seems like nobody liked the idea of fracking except for Liz Truss. <laughs> nobody liked it. And they decided they were going to have a vote about it and it was going to be like a vote of – they also said this is going to be the equivalent of a, like a vote of confidence in the government. So – it was framed in that way, which was to try and force the uh, various MPs to toe the line. And they have what's called the whip and the deputy whip, and the whips are the people who are supposed to make sure that all MPs vote in line with what the government wants them to vote. Yeah, so the whip is aligned to the party. Yes, and uh, a bit of an enforcer to make sure people toe the line. And so... Outside the corridors, it was just chaos with people screaming at each other and yelling and being physically forceful on each other about this vote. It was quite an ugly scene, apparently. And I'm going to play a clip from uh, one of the MPs who was there and see what he has to say. Perfectly honest, this whole affair is inexcusable. It, it is just... It is a pitiful reflection on the Conservative Parliamentary Party at every level. Um, And it reflects really badly, obviously, on the government of the day. Do you think there's any coming back from this? I don't think so. But I haven't. I I have to say I've been of that view really since two two weeks ago. this is an absolute disgrace. As a Tory MP of 17 years, who's never been a minister, who's got on with it loyally most of the time, I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling. So you seem quietly... I'm, I'm, I'm livid. And, you know, I really shouldn't say this, but I hope all those people that put Liz Truss in number 10, I hope it was worth it. I hope it was worth it for the ministerial red box. I hope it was worth it to sit around the cabinet table because the damage they have done to our party is extraordinary. I'm sorry, it's very difficult to convey. You look just furious about this. I am. I am. I've had enough. I've had enough of talentless people um, putting their tick in the right box, not because it's in the national interest, but because it's in their own personal interest to achieve ministerial position. And I, and I know I speak for hundreds of backbenchers who right now um, are worrying for their constituents all the time, but now worrying about their own personal circumstances because there is nothing as X as an ex-MP. And a lot of my colleagues are wondering, as many of their constituents are wondering, how they're going to pay their mortgages if this all comes to an end soon. So he described his own party as a shambles and mm-hmm. a disgrace and talentless people. Yeah. Where was the Australian liberals of the same mind? Where, why did we – we never got anybody making the same admission about our, our shambles and disgrace and talentless people. Were there none or were there none that the – News wanted to find. I think, I think people would would have liked to have heard it, like they would have heard that guy then. So, I just don't think there was the honesty in the Australian bunch to admit what a shambles and a disgrace they they'd become. So, so that was uh, so that was uh, that comment by that guy, which was um, that was fairly damning, but. 
Even better is, uh, of course, Jonathan Pye. So I'll play one of his clips, and um, uh, this is where the language warning will probably be appropriate. Wait for this one to come up. Okay, Jonathan Pye. She was the inevitable bottom of the Brexit barrel, the political equivalent of a skid mark, a ghost poo that felt uncomfortable, but hey, it's gone. I cut it short. I didn't play the whole thing. Look up Jonathan Pye. Uh, he goes to town on the whole situation. Real anger amongst British commentators, even very much against ones who would call themselves formerly Tories, if you like, or Liberals or something like that. Real anger at, at what was going on. Um, and you could see that in a number of the comments. Actually, um, more clips because uh, some of them are really good. This one is from uh, Graham Norton. I'll bring this one up. Um, where is he? Uh, your one again. Who's it going to be next? Well, sources say it could be Penny Mordaunt. Yeah, for the party's sake. It could be Rishi Sunak for the country's sake, or even Boris Johnson. <laughs> for... <laughs> yeah, I mean that was. Yeah, we've learnt now it's Sunak, but um, somebody Johnson was in the mix. Apparently, quoted as saying, "Voting Boris Johnson back in is like trying to push a turd back in." Yeah, I mean it's only a handful of months since he was there, mm -hmm. and he's facing an inquiry as mm -hmm. to the things he got up to while he was in power, and the thought that he could possibly be elected as Prime Minister and then face that inquiry and that there were, now how many MPs that were in favour of it, who knows, but there definitely were some, including that Reese Mogg character mm -hmm. who's straight out of some sort of Monty Python-esque type of caricature of a British toff. So sad, sad times for politics in the UK with the Tories in power, with the... And um, the next election's 2025. Yes, long way off. So um, um, according to Sean McLaughlin on Twitter, Christ, at least the Italians and the Greeks have decent food. We're going through all this with beans on fucking toast. Mm -hmm. so, uh, another guy from um, MasterChef, one of the contestants, Adam Law, L-I-A-W, He's on Twitter. He's quite good on a number of different things. He said, I know there's been a lot of talk about Australia separating from England and becoming a republic, but just throwing it out there that with all they've got going through at the moment, why don't we consider invading? Mm. Uh, it's just a shambles. It is, it's a sad thing. We'll just keep running through some of these, um, running through some of these clips and then we'll talk a bit more in depth about what it actually means. Uh, Joe, do you speak German? Uh, very, very badly. Okay, all right. Well, you can interpret this one for us um, afterwards. Maybe. Woraufhin dann der stellvertretende Fraktionschef das Parlament mit den Worten verließ, I'm fucking furious and I don't fucking care anymore. Ich übersetze das jetzt mal nicht, aber das ist eine Partei, wo wirklich... She, of course, was quoting, uh, I think, one of the whips uh, who just sort of, just in exasperation about the shambles and disgrace that they were having to deal with at the time. So, um, yeah, that was still a standard news report in Germany, quoting what... Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen similar things where people have said something in a foreign language that is obviously swearing and they haven't bothered editing it because... Most viewers aren't going to understand. Yeah, most Germans would. So, yeah. Yeah. Some things that haven't aged well. Um, uh, things that haven't aged well. There was a tweet by Peter Dutton, which was only uh, in September, 5th of September. He, he hasn't aged well either. No, but his tweet was, I congratulate Liz Truss on her election as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Liz Truss is an incredibly intelligent, pragmatic and courageous leader 
who will not only make a fine Prime Minister, but also lead Britain through challenges, domestic and foreign. It's not aged well. No. Yeah, the whole incredibly intelligent was not. Yeah. Uh, what other people have said. Yeah. Other ones who haven't aged well would be, uh, uh, this was an American take on her in the early days as well. The U.S. midterm elections cavalry arrived early in London. What do I mean by that? Well, the new British Prime Minister Liz Truss has laid out a terrific supply-side economic growth plan, which looks a lot like the basic thrust of Kevin McCarthy's commitment to America plan. Let's start with Truss. She is slashing tax rates and deregulating energy. I just love it. That's the liberal business media. This is so wonderful. The liberal business media, you know what I'm talking about, is now trashing her plan. That tells me Truss has it exactly right. Was that clip of her when she poisoned the Queen? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you heard about her memoir? It's going to be published as a tweet, according to The Shovel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, just reading an article here, this was from Dr Ben Wellings, Senior Lecturer in Politics, Monash. Current turmoil in British politics needs to be understood, not just as a response to Liz Truss's short time as Prime Minister, but as a result of the problems within the governing Conservative Party since it came to power in 2010. The Conservative Party is a group of about 180,000 people who tend to be wealthier and older than the average UK citizen. It was this group, more than Truss's fellow MPs, who chose her as leader of the Conservative Party. It was also this group that endorsed the policy she tried to impose on the country, causing an outcry from the populace and the markets. So basically, small group of people in the Conservative Party, uh, Sunak and Liz Truss were put to them and... The parliamentarians obviously preferred Sunak at the time, but the membership went for Liz Truss. And that's because they are an odd group of people who are completely out of touch with what the UK really needs. And it's not about what the UK needs, it's what about they need. Yeah, well, they actually thought these were good ideas, this, this growth mantra. This trickle down laffer curve stuff they actually thought would work. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, a small group of people running that Conservative Party uh, detached from reality. And this time it didn't even go to them, Joe. So, this time, I mean, if it had gone to the membership again and say they were offered Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. As an alternative, there's a fair chance they would have gone with Boris Johnson. So perhaps the UK is lucky that it didn't go to the membership this time. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think they quite liked Boris Johnson, but he had completely lost confidence. Yeah. Yep. Um, let me see what I've got here. Um I think that's the main the main bits from that actually is what a shambles. At least there was some honesty from some of the players who were openly saying that they were just fucking over the whole rock show, that it was a shambles and a disgrace. People who are long-time conservative voters, uh, exasperated and angry and full of rage at what had happened. And Joe, it sounds like this new guy is, I mean, he's going to be better than his trust, but that doesn't mean anything. He's a very wooden sort of performer. He's apparently lacks any charisma. He's not going to be a great salesman. His ideas are not very good on his track record. Yeah, I mean, a, I, I suppose they're hoping for a John Major, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, a man of politics. Yeah, um, I don't know what they're hoping for, but and he's an extremely well. His his wife um, is 
was very, very wealthy from her father who was some sort of tech um, billionaire. And, um, yeah, he's a former Goldman Sachs um, sort of player as well. It's, It's hard to imagine, even with a really good Prime Minister, that the UK could drag themselves out of the predicament they're in where they have detached themselves from... Uh, the European market, it's incredibly difficult and cumbersome to sell stuff into that market. They're not competitive the in other markets. Wanted. Yes. And it's it's hard to imagine them doing anything other than tourism from now on. What, what have they got to offer? Well, they're going to sell back to the colonies, you know, like they were in the, height, yeah. the heyday of Britain's power back in the 50s. Yeah. As Liz Truss said, selling pork and and tea. To China, yeah. as if. I just opium to China. It's just uh, even with a really smart, switched-on prime minister who could pull all sorts of magical levers, it's hard to imagine them overcoming the fundamentals of a completely ruined economy that doesn't do anything what's required and is cut off from its markets. Energy is going to be more. It's just a shambles. So, well, I mean, London was the big, uh, the city of London. So, mm. financial markets was a huge amount of the UK's economy. Mm. Um, but with Brexit, a lot of people just moved off. Um, I think to Germany. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, just trying to transfer between pounds and euros, there was so much risk. Mm. Because when they were part of the EU, the pound was pegged. Mm. So there was some flexibility, there was some movement in the in the exchange rate, but it was still pegged to a degree. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, um, feel sorry for them. Um, good luck. You're going to need it over there. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, closer to home, netballers this time. So it's not Christian footballers, but uh, netballers and uh, Hancock Mining. So we had this situation where there was a new uh, player in the team, a rookie, Indigenous uh, player. I've got her, Donnell Wallum, and she was not happy about wearing the team outfit which um, had Hancock Prospecting logo uh, on it. And she was aware of an interview done with Lang Hancock from the 1980s, where he basically said that um, Indigenous people should be sterilised so that they would eventually vanish from our community. And um, so she was wanting to make a personal objection where she herself wouldn't have to wear that. And her teammates were quite supportive of her, Mm -hmm. it seems, and were willing to, uh, it seems, express the same opinion, sort of in support of her, that they didn't want to wear it either. There was negotiations. It all gets a bit hazy as to, at the end of the day, what they were prepared to do. But it seems they were trying to backpedal when it looked like it was getting quite serious that the sponsorship was in trouble. And anyway... Um, the Hancock Group basically pulled their sponsorship and said um, that doesn't matter what you want to do now, we're out of here, not interested in negotiating anymore, mm-hmm. we're not appreciated, we're gone. And they issued a statement about that. So uh, before we get more into the detail of What's the ethics of this? Um, let me just find this part there. Um, uh, let's see. So the bombshell from Reinhardt, the deal was off, and so it was Roy Hill's $2 million four-year deal with Netball Western Australia as well, a state body that had nothing to do with the saga. So they pulled their sponsorship of a state body as well. Um, they put out some statements and... Um, uh, mostly in their statements from Hancock Prospecting, it highlighted the miners' economic contribution to Western Australia and Indigenous communities in which 
they operate their mines, and there was a warning to Australian athletes about the cost of virtue signalling and self-publicity, as they described it. So basically, Hancock Mining accused Wallum and her supporters of virtue signalling, self-publicity. Um, so a couple of things about that, Joe. I mean, when you as a corporation are sponsoring some sporting team that on the face of it has nothing to do with your business as a corporation. That sounds like virtue signalling and self-publicity <laughs> to me. Exactly. What is sports sponsorship if not virtue signalling? Mm -hmm. And definitely self-publicity. Yes. And a mixing of, of business and sport and politics and all the rest of it. Like, mm -hmm. So, so you know, you can't. It's being hypocritical, hypocritical to say to accuse her of virtue signalling. So, like, how do I sit on this one? Because previously in the past, uh, with Fanlao and all the rest of it, what would what would be a consistent approach to this? And I guess I my approach would be that if uh, she didn't want to wear the sponsor's um, logo on her shirt and the sponsorship was reliant on that, then the Netball Australia would be entitled to say to her, well, it's part of the deal. You wear this or you don't play. And if you can't wear it, we totally understand. But if we're going to pay you all this money, we need the sponsorship. And so if you don't wear it, we can't have you because we it's the way this business operates. I would have thought that would have been a, a fair enough response by Netball Australia. Now, what happens to make this interesting is that uh, her colleagues, her teammates, were ready to go into bat for her. And mm -hmm. if you've got a whole team that says, well, we don't want this logo, then this is the beauty of collective bargaining. This is what strikes yep. and collective activism are all about. If one person goes on strike, they're screwed and see you later. But if everybody does, you have some collective power. And I think Netball Australia have were, were on side with Hancock is possibly not somebody they want to represent them at a corporate level. Right. They would have preferred a different sponsor. Yes. Yep. Yep. I, I think having been having this media interview brought to their attention, they've gone, yeah, actually, we agree with you. We do align with you. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I mean, so this is, you know, tobacco advertising is a classic example where, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, you know, Winfield and other tobacco manufacturers sponsored everything and people started saying, hang on a minute, that's not a good look. I don't think we should be doing this. So uh, so this is, when it, when it comes to uh, environmental issues are the latest one now mm -hmm. and, I mean, if a company uh, isn't, I'm not saying Hancock Mining is, but because um, they're largely iron ore, aren't they, Joe? Um, but, uh, yeah, according not to like Wikipedia, a coal miner, for example. No, it's not coal. It's um, hmm. uh, 500 square kilometres of iron ore leases in the Pilbara region and ferruginous manganese hmm. uh, and also uranium molybdenum, lead, hmm. zinc, gold, diamonds and petroleum deposits. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So let's assume, you know, a coal miner wants to support a a, um, a sporting team. Mm -hmm. You know, in today's world, a coal miner is kind of like a tobacco company of... Yeah, very much. ...used to be. So, um, so yeah, these things change. And really, you know, good on the, the players for being a true team and supporting 
the rookie player and being prepared to act collectively and basically say, you know, well, we support and we're all in on this. And now it would have been up to Netball Australia to say, well, we really want the sponsorship and we're prepared to wear the cost of having a second string team. So we're just going to scare the country and, and try and rustle up some scabs to play. Um, they might have had a hard time doing it. It's just an interesting exercise in collective action, I think, is the most revealing thing from this. If you stick mm. together, then you have some power. And um, yeah, and that was yeah. the thing with. Um, Israel Folau, I don't think his teammates on the whole su- supported his stance. Correct. He was out on his own. So mm-hmm. um, in that case, if he'd been able to rustle together his whole team to stand behind him, he might still be playing. But his was a cause that wasn't one that met with community standards at the time. No. So... And that's what this is all about to a large extent is what's the prevailing community standard because these businesses are having to get funds to run businesses relying on satisfying community standards. And if they can't, they can't run that business. It doesn't work. So that's, you know, an essential part of all this. And and I, I think the telling point is that she doesn't seem to have distanced herself from her father's comments. Yes. It's not like, yeah, his comments were insensitive and I totally disown them. Mm. And, yeah, the, the company still bears her father's name. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, that's what people are saying is, well, why haven't you disowned what your father said in that interview? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, yeah, the hypocrisy of of the mining company calling it virtue signalling when that is the essence of a sports sponsorship and the collective action by her teammates proving the power of collective action, I think, is the other part of all this. And, you know, they've gone now, uh, you know, if another company doesn't come in to fill that sponsorship, then... What sort of business are you running? What sort of sport are you running? If you can't get a sponsorship from another company, then you don't deserve it. Sure, companies are falling over themselves on the back of this Mm. to be the ones who did the right thing. It'll be interesting to see. But if they don't, and if, for example, um, the players get nowhere near that sort of sponsorship and therefore wage... They've only got to look at it and go, well, gee, if the only way we could get that money was through someone like Hancock Mining, then we don't have a great business to start with. So there's some fundamental issues there. So, um, yeah, interesting case yet again, sporting conflict creating ethical dilemmas. Um, The other option, of course, what should really be happening is the government should just tax Gina Reinhart and then pay Netball Australia what they need to run the competition. Interestingly enough, mm. in the financial year 2016 and 2017, uh, Hancock Prospecting paid one third to a half of the IPA's total revenue in those years. Right. Yeah. Institute of Public Affairs. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise known as a very right-wing think tank. Yes. So they've... Um... You know, okay, they're supporting the swimming, but they're also supporting a bunch of other things. And this is a drop in the ocean for uh, Hancock. Uh, mm. Reading a um, something I saw on Facebook from Grant, who said, um, a little perspective on how little money $15 million is to Gina Reinhardt uh, with her wealth at $26.1 billion, um, a percentage of wealth the donation she has made would be equal to someone with $2.6 million giving the diamonds $1,500. So it's just chicken feed. And uh, so, um, yeah, it's, it's a small change for her. And um, at the end of the day, 
these miners who have extracted this enormous wealth just demonstrates we haven't charged enough in royalties mm-hmm. for what we're giving, for what they've got. Um, Joe, there was a guy, this reminded me a little bit of a guy called Michael Jones who was a famous all black and he was a, had strong Christian beliefs and so much so that he refused to play football on Sundays. Mm-hmm. So he was, at his prime, he was possibly the best player that the All Blacks had. And if a game happened to fall on a Sunday, he just wouldn't play. And um, so just looked him up on Wikipedia. Um, uh, he missed uh, like three Sunday games at the 1991 tournament, uh, World Cup tournament, due to his religious beliefs. And um, he was actually didn't even make it to the 95 squad because he would have been unavailable for the quarterfinal and semifinal games. I think at that point he's probably past his best. So um, I think he was also... Recently he was the same. Hmm. He wasn't available on Sundays. Right. Yep. Um, An AFL player or... Okay. Well, this is certainly a famous example in all black times. Okay. Um, And I think he was sort of... Polynesian sort of background as well, mm-hmm. which often goes hand in hand with these strong Christian beliefs. Um, so yeah, that was um, that was uh, the netball saga. Any Chinese speakers in our community out there? I'm Do you want to be a little of, more specific? Mm, uh, well, I, if you're to go, there's a there's a site called um, Billy Billy, which is a bit like the YouTube of China. So I would imagine that is Mandarin. Mandarin. Okay. Yeah. If there's any keen supporters of the program and you speak Mandarin and could help me get onto Billy Billy, could you reach out? That'd be fun. I know a couple of people who are Mandarin speakers. Ah, okay. I could possibly ask them. All right. That'd be good. Ah, Joe, Lydia Thorpe. Ah, she was on a parliamentary committee being confidentially briefed on stuff relating to outlaw bikey gangs. Yeah. And it seems she was going out with a guy who was, was a leader, a former, former, former leader yeah. of a bikey gang, and she didn't disclose it. And so there's a furor about that. Mm. I'm all for disclosing potential conflicts of interest. I think every politician should disclose their religion because... Uh, it's relevant to their decision-making in regards to many things. Um, it doesn't mean she couldn't have still been involved in it. She just had to disclose it. Yeah. So um, so they could make an assessment of whether she was a, a risk of this information getting back to the bikies. Yes, and if she had comments to make, then people could say, ah, well, you're probably only saying that because of your relationship with this Bikey, mm-hmm. or maybe you're only saying that because of your relationship. So, I mean, politicians will have conflicts of interest all the time. Yeah, doesn't mean they should be excused from um, voting on these things or being involved. It's just that people need to know. So, every politician has a superannuation account. They can still be involved in making laws in relation to superannuation. We just need to know about these things. Yeah, unfortunately, they also get an index-linked pension from the government. Yes. Which means that when they fuck up our superannuation schemes, they don't suffer. Yeah, well, aren't they? Hasn't, haven't they moved on to Have us? Yeah. So they used to be on defined benefit, but now politicians are on um, the same sort of system we are. They just get oh, more. Okay. Like It's a very generous input into it. But, right. Um, now I think they're pretty much on the same system we are. Um, so, yeah, um, lots of people falling over themselves, vilifying Lydia Thorpe, and, yes, she should have disclosed that relationship and doesn't look good, but ultimately I think she still probably could have sat on the committee and um, just need to disclose it. Yeah. Um, what else we got here? Ah, 
Christian school. School principal asked the students if they knew that an unmarried teacher lived with her boyfriend. So this is from The Guardian. Um, a guy called Ben Smee is the reporter. He's doing lots of good stuff. In, a bit like um, Crikey has done a lot on um, demonstrating the privileges that religions are enjoying and Ben Smee of The Guardian's doing a good job as well. So the principal of a Queensland religious school interrogated students about whether they knew a teacher was living with her boyfriend amid concerns that the teacher's lifestyle went against its biblical moral standards. I'd suggest it's none of their fucking business. Hmm. So uh, Guardian Australia has seen emails and other information confirming that the principal of Livingston Christian College launched an investigation into an allegation the teacher had breached her contract by telling a class that she was unmarried and lived with her partner. The English teacher resigned soon afterwards, saying she felt unable to remain at the school. And um, uh, let me see. The teacher said she was aware the school had a lifestyle document for employees relating to its Christian values, but um, she said she was not asked about her private life when she was hired, nor was she ever told that her private personal relationships would have any bearing on her employment. And um, uh, she was summoned to a meeting. During the meeting, the principal said a family had alleged the teacher had told the class she was living with a boyfriend and had asked students to keep the information confidential. She denied ever making such a statement to her class. What a tawdry, oh, not tawdry, just once again. I'm a little concerned that the child felt it necessary to grasp the teacher up. Yeah, well, teacher says didn't even do it. So it kind of reminds me of that French school teacher. Mm. Which one was the, that? The the oh, kid in the class, uh, Charlie alleged, Hebdo one. Yeah, well, mm. uh, alleged that they'd insulted the Quran, mm. and the teacher ended up getting murdered. And mm. almost yeah. certainly, it was made up because the child was playing hooky and wanted to make an excuse. Yeah. So in this case, the teacher said, I didn't even do it. Uh, it's possible the parents saw the teacher out somewhere. Who knows? Who knows what happened? But just that this sort of thing in this modern day and age. Um, there we go. Another Christian school behaving badly. Um, what else have I got here? Um, uh, in um, What's Wrong with America? File. Um, nothing, absolutely nothing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, it goes on a bit long. I would play this clip, but I won't. Um, according to Reuters, Korea's top automaker, Hyundai, is planning to sever ties with some suppliers after finding exploitative child labour in its supply chain in Alabama. Yes. Child labour in Alabama. Probably in a prison camp. Causing a Korean automaker to sever ties. Because, you know, the whatever it is amendment, the 14th Amendment that bans slavery, mm. there's an exception for people in prison. Yes. Yep. So forced labour is allowed if you're in prison. Mm. And, and the Americans... Some 49 cents a day type crazy rate. Yep. Yeah. Sort of a Shawshank Redemption mm. type scenario operating still. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me reading Chasing the Scream. Mm. And he says that it's quite possible that America is the first civilization in the history of this planet to have a higher rate of rapes, male victims of rape than female victims. Wow. Because of the number of rapes, the number of people incarcerated and the level of rape that goes on in prisons in America. Wow. That there are almost certainly more male victims of rape now in America than there are female victims. Wow. Yeah. It's insane. Mm. 
add that to the file, uh, what's wrong with America? So, yeah, this Reuters investigation in July documented children, including a 12-year-old, working at a Hyundai-controlled metal stamping plant in rural Alabama. Um, following the report, um, State Department of Labor, in coordination with federal agencies, began investigating this company in Alabama and they subsequently launched a child labour probe at another supplier, uh, finding children as young as 13. Wow. Okay, so child labour in America causing a Korean firm to cancel. Uh, I, I wonder if they were undocumented mm. um, non-citizens. Yeah. Yeah. People from third world countries who'd escaped to America for a better life. Mm, true. Would they be in Alabama? I don't know. Well, that's what I'm wondering. I know that Texas and New Mexico, but Alabama's close enough. Mm. Yeah. It's possible. I don't know. Another one I've had in the notes here for a long time was uh, in relation to Donald Trump really hated John McCain. John McCain was like the war hero who was shot down or captured and um, uh, brutally tortured in, in a, I think, a Vietnamese prison camp and, um, like, yeah, a genuine war hero who mm-hmm. Trump despised. And there's a ship in the U.S. Navy uh, called the USS John McCain and um, uh, Trump took a trip to Japan back in 2019 when he was president and uh, emails have surfaced um, where essentially the Navy had to make sure that the US John McCain, USS John McCain, the ship, was mm-hmm. not in port when, when Donald Trump came in. Or at least not in view, yeah. Or not in view. What a pathetic man and this level of nastiness and just added to the whole crazy Americans. Um, another crazy Americans. I'm going to get through some of my clips here. This one is uh, Rudy Giuliani. Let's play this one. And there's talk of sanctions and America loves sanctions. So this was Giuliani talking about sanctions. Happened. They are going to be overthrown. The people of Iran obviously have now had enough. The sanctions are working. The currency is going to nothing. They're where Russia was. They're where Poland was. We see signs of young men and women saying, give me some food. We saw a sign of a man trying to sell his internal organs for 500 American dollars. Probably a fortune in Iran today. This is truly pitiful. These are the kinds of conditions that lead to successful revolution and, God willing, nonviolent revolution. So he saw it as a success that somebody was selling their organs. The level of poverty that lots of Americans are living in, actually. Yes. God willing, it'll be a nonviolent revolution there. Mm. And if sanctions lead to somebody having to sell their organs, Ah, that's it's a great. good thing. It's working, and that will lead to a revolution. That's what it's all about. Thank you, America. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> I, Joe, I have seen... a Russian friend who's just escaped from Moscow. You have? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, he he was putting up with it, with things sticking away in the background, and then the whole conscription thing happened, and he's now... Um, Hiding in a former Soviet state, whilst waiting for his 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 German visa to become active. Right. So he's going to Germany. And is that automatic? Is that easy to get a German visa? Does oh no, no, he's been working on it for a while. But right. um, whilst that was going on, suddenly there was this conscription, and he decided he needed to get out of Moscow before he was conscripted and sent to the front line. Mm. So just a little nugget of what's going on in inside mm. Russia. But in terms of the, uh, the sanctions, mm. um, he said he was able to get almost everything that he could get before 
and really there was no change in the way of life. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And um, it was almost there was more of more patriotism because you know these filthy foreigners they've pulled out, and um, it gives us a chance for our glorious countrymen to take over and fill the gaps in the market. There you go. And if it wasn't for the conscription, he would have stayed. Was it? Ah, oh, he oh. didn't want to be in that regime anyway. But right, mm. um, I, I don't. Uh, he he was saying that a lot of their people they knew weren't against it. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, also, in the Only in America file. Joe, have you seen face-slapping competitions? No. Not since I was in primary school anyway. I somehow ended up down some YouTube rabbit hole and um, and uh, there's, a, um, there's, this, there's this thing they do where these grown men and women um, stand opposite each other across a short table and take turns to slap each other as hard as they possibly can across the face and quite often knocking somebody out. But there's no evasion. You have to purposefully just stand there and get your head belted with a face slap. There was a thing in a computer game I played a couple of months ago that had that in it, and I wondered where it came from, and it seemed very strange, but maybe this is a nod to this tradition. Yeah. It's as if 13-year-olds invented a sport, Joe, mm-hmm. and they're looking at getting a professional league up and running. Yeah, I mean, when we were in Scouts, we used to play a game called Bloody Mary where at the end you got wrapped over the knuckles with a set of playing cards and right. the idea was to get somebody bleeding. Right. Nevada's Athletic Commission voted to oversee a league on the controversial sport that has already seen one competitor die. Surely yeah. this is like um, rugby and all those other games where you're getting head contact and you're ending up with long-term brain damage because of the concussions. Absolutely. I mean, these people are necessarily getting concussed. Exactly. Almost so sh- guaranteed. Surely there's liability there. Somebody's going to end up getting their ass sued. But Joe, I was watching this tournament and... And the posturing and the carrying on and the crowd of thousands of people cheering. And as these two huge men were just slapping each other until one of them was rendered unconscious and slumped into the arms of his assistants and the other guy was beating his chest and and revving the crowd up and Arnold Schwarzenegger was there commentating and and, okay. and I just thought, Civilization, at least in that part of the world, has completely disintegrated where a mad crowd was just howling with glee. As have, you, have you never watched wrestling? Well, at least that's pretend. If they hurt somebody, it's an accident. I just, it was just the demise of civilization yet again. Yeah, it's pugilism all over. I've never understood that either. Yeah, at least with that, people, the idea is protect yourself, mm. you know, and um, this is just outright barbaric behaviour. Anyway, I just looked at it and I thought, oh, man, on top of the UK political drama, just yet another sign of civilization collapsing. Really, like something out of a Mad Max type of movie. So, so you're it suggesting is, they need some Jesus in their lives, do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dear listener, have you ever wondered uh, how to decide whom to train as an RAF fighter pilot? I'm obviously getting through some obscure stuff here. Mm. Mm. It's not something that ever crossed my mind, I have to say. No. This is fun fact stuff when you're at a dinner party. During the Second World War, experts needed to decide whom to train as RAF fighter pilots. Today, this would mean a battery of complex tests. But back then, they used two simple questions. One, 
Have you ever owned a motorcycle? Two, do you own one now? The ideal recruits were those who answered yes to number one and no to question two. They wanted people who had been brave enough to ride a motorbike but were sane enough to abandon the habit. Okay. Do you ever have a motorbike, Joe? No. I had one. Yeah. For a short while and then abandoned it. I could have been an RAF fighter pilot. No, because you wear glasses. Ah, that's right. Damn it. That's true. Mm. This reminded me of something I read. Uh, this Patrick Cockburn wrote this thing, talking about a different story of German of a German general sometime before the Second World War, who said that he divided officers being considered for promotion to senior rank into four categories. Those he deemed clever and energetic were suitable for positions on the general staff. The clever but lazy got the top job because they would focus on taking the important decisions and leave others alone to get on with their work. The stupid but lazy yet uh, might yet be useful when forced to fight on the front line, but the stupid and energetic officer was a menace to the whole army and must be sacked immediately. I immediately thought of Scott Morrison. Stupid and energetic? Yes, energetic mm. in his own selfish way. Yeah, a lot of these guys, stupid but energetic. There was a saying in, when I was a cadet that you should never trust an officer with a map. Right, with a map. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that? Because they can't read maps and therefore oh, they would get you lost. Oh, okay, yeah. You, you, left it to, you left it to the sergeant major. Yeah. Right, I think we're nearly done. I haven't been looking closely at the chat room, but John has been going crazy in there, um, I think. Um, uh, yes, MMA would be the same thing, crowd baying for blood. Um, uh, and I can't go back through the other ones. I'm going to make this a short one because I wasn't able to do my normal preparation uh, because of these technical issues that we were battling for a couple of hours. So... That's got through a fair bit. Um, hope you enjoyed that. Okay, dear listener, a bit of a haphazard one. Talk to you next week. Bye for now. And it's a good night from him.